Good morning, everyone. Welcome back to the Formula of Concord, here in the Reader's Edition of the Lutheran Confessions. We are looking at Article 2, and we're about to wrap it up. Article 2, of course, has been a lengthy article, a dense article. It's on free will, so you'd expect it to be. Now, we have maneuvered ourselves right up against the negative statements. That's on page 533. So here in the negative statements, and don't get confused if and when there are double negatives uh, here and elsewhere, that's one of the difficulties with the negative statements, that section at the end of each of the articles is get into a little bit of double or triple or quadruple negative and you're trying to sort out which is which and what is actually being condemned. It's not so bad here. Rather, in fact, here we have a... A fantastic, it's almost a glossary, it's almost a dictionary of three very important theological terms. They're all interrelated. In fact, uh, in terms of meaning, semantically, they all overlap a bit. But the first is going to be Pelagianism, then semi-Pelagianism, then synergism. So we're going to look at that, we're going to talk about what those terms mean, how they overlap and what the big deal is about those things. So, let's look then at paragraph 74 on page 533. One, first, the folly of the Stoics and Manichaeans who asserted that everything that happens must happen in this way, that a person does everything from coercion. So that position, uh, specifically well-known among Stoics and Manichaeans, that complete fatalism or determinism is here rejected. Specifically that a person does everything from coercion. So you'll say, those of you who have read uh, Luther's Bondage of the Will, and you'll say, well, I thought he had a kind of determinism there. Well, perhaps so. But his kind of determinism would be quite distinct from this latter clause, that a person does everything from coercion. So a sort of crass fatalism or determinism would be to say that your will is at best removed from the equation, or maybe even the events are contrary to your will, but they nonetheless happen. You're subject to the fates. You can think of Greek myths where you know, a prophecy is foretold and everyone scrambles against the prophecy in just such a way that it works out and happens. So that fate or destiny happens despite all of man's willing against it. That idea, that philosophical idea, is what's here being rejected. Okay. What would be a kind of quote-unquote fatalism, quote-unquote determinism that Luther uh, put forward in Bondage of the Will and that we Lutherans might still hold to. That would be this kind of expression, that the fallen human being cannot help but will sin. Okay. And so thus a sinner is going to sin. As sure as the sun is going to shine, a sinner is going to sin. And similarly, God can foreknow 
events. He can foresee events without causing them. <clears throat> he can leave other uh, lower causes so that God, for example, doesn't cause Adam and Eve to fall into sin. That causes with them. And yet he can foresee and foreknow that they're going to fall into this sin. And yet are they going to fall into this sin contrary to their wills? By coercion, because God foreordained that they must and therefore strive as they will against it, they end up falling into sin? No. But rather they willingly choose and do so. So men who are sinners willingly choose to sin, and the succession of events God can foresee, foreknow. That's a perfectly acceptable kind of, again, quote-unquote fatalism, quote-unquote determinism. You can see how it's very different from the pagan philosophical determinism, which includes the idea of coercion. You remember the bondage of the will isn't that God forces people to do things against their will or that Satan forces people to do things against their will. That is not the bondage of the will. The bondage of the will is that sinners do whatever sinners want to do and are precisely bound to themselves. Sinners can do nothing but sin. A bad tree can produce nothing but bad fruit. You see the idea? And the flip side would be then that when we are converted to the Holy Spirit or bound as it will to the Holy Spirit, which in truth means to be free, then when we are bound to the Holy Spirit and bound to the Word of Christ, again, it's not as if we're puppets. It's not as if we're rocks being pushed about or wax getting a seal stamped into it. Those are some of the examples used in the Book of Concord. It's not like that at all. When the Holy Spirit converts us, He changes the will in us so that we actively will and choose and love to do those things which are in accord with the Holy Spirit, precisely because they're inspired by Him, who now dwells in us by virtue of baptism and faith. Okay, so are you seeing the difference then? If that seems like a subtle difference, I apologize, but it, you know, the more you look at it, the more you think about it, it's a rather large difference. It's the difference between paganism and Lutheranism, paganism and biblical Christianity. So that's that first line. First, the folly of the Stoics and the Manichaeans who asserted that everything that happens must happen in this way, that a person does everything from coercion. Okay, that is rejected. The confessions continue. And even in outward works, a person's will has no freedom or ability to perform to a certain extent outward righteousness and respectable behavior. Again, this position of the Stoics and Manichaeans is rejected. Lutherans, by contrast, believe that men are free to be civilly righteous. That is to say, even a non-converted person, an unbelieving person, a person who does nothing but sin, can still keep the speed limit if he chooses or pay his taxes on time. He can be civilly righteous. But does that civil righteousness avail before God? No. No. Paul says even those who seek to be justified by the law of God are fallen from grace. How much more than those who seek to be justified by the civil law, by the law of man, or the law of man that happens to overlap with the law of God civil righteousness. Okay. 
So here you can picture Nicodemus. I think he is probably, <clears throat> probably the, big, the Bible's greatest example of a man who is civilly righteous. He is a Pharisee among the Pharisees. He's known for being virtuous, and he even shows a great deal of temperance and humility in the presence of Jesus. And he calls him good teacher. Right? So Nicodemus is seen not as the worst of humanity, but as the very best of humanity. Far better than the Gentiles, because he is a Jew and has God's law. Far better than the average Jew, because he is a Pharisee. Far better than the other Pharisees, because he even shows deference to Christ and calls him good teacher. You see, so in Nicodemus, you have a figure who is the peak and the pinnacle, the very best of all humanity. And Jesus says to him, what? You must be born again. You must be born again. Everything that you are is worth zilch. Indeed, all your righteousness is as filthy rags. You cannot see the kingdom. You cannot enter the kingdom unless you are born again. To put that in reverse, Jesus tells him, you are dead and you are blind. Poor Nicodemus is just thinking, all I did was say, call him good teacher. <laughs> but now you see how far then the righteousness of man and this sort of idea that is... Uh, present in all times and all places of just being a good, upstanding, right-hearted human being, uh, certainly God's going to be impressed by that. Certainly that's enough. And, of course, the most stunning teaching of the Bible right off the bat is, no, you must be utterly born again. You at present are blind and dead. Right? So the Bible's you know, first teaching its first revelation to fallen man is a stunning one and in itself is an offensive one. Okay, let's look at that last sentence of paragraph 74. Again, we're on page 533 in the uh, Lutheran Confessions for those of you who might have just come in. Uh, page 533 down at the very end of paragraph 74. A person cannot avoid outward sins and Vices Again, that's the, that's the position of the Stoics and the Manichaeans. A person most certainly can avoid outward sins and vices to some extent. Okay, that is to say, they can keep the speed limit. You know, it's not the devil made me do it or my flesh made me do it. You have a choice. You can, you can keep the law. A person's will is coerced to do outward wicked deeds, unchastity, robbery, murder, and such. That too is rejected. It's not that a person's will is coerced, that is forced to do it against his will, forced to do bad things against his will. That is rejected. It is precisely his fallen will that desires to do those bad things. So you can see the Lutheran position here, the biblical position, made distinct from pagan philosophy. That's, that's the first point. That's paragraph one, if you will. So pagan, this, this aspect of pagan philosophy, rejected. The kind of determinism, the kind of devil made me do it, to, to vastly oversimplify pagan philosophy, that's rejected. 
the heart and root problem is the heart and root of man, namely his will. He wills to do that which is evil. Are we good on paragraph one? All right, two. These are easier. Second, the error of the gross Pelagians, that the free will from its own natural powers, without the Holy Spirit, can turn to God and believe the gospel. People can be obedient to God's law from the heart, and by this voluntary obedience, the heart can merit the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. So here's what I'm talking about. It's almost like a glossary or a dictionary definition of Pelagianism, crass or gross Pelagianism. It's, if you're one that writes in your book, it's well worth writing Pelagian on the, on the uh, or Pelagianism on the um, right-hand column there because this is, a, this is a textbook definition and it's rejected. Again, why is it rejected? Well, you can go two directions with it. You can go the Article 1 direction, original sin, which says, which takes the Bible's witness and testimony that there's nothing good in us that can turn to God. Okay? You can go the other direction in terms of grace and say, if it requires anything from us, some work, some doing on our part, then it has ceased to be grace. Okay. Now, Pelagianism is the most crass. Luther actually has, it's a bit ironic, but it actually has a better taste in his mouth with Pelagianism because at least it's honest. At least it's honest. It comes right out and says, yeah, man's not dead in his trespasses. Man's just mostly dead. Man's not blind spiritually. He just doesn't quite see 2020. That at least puts the thing as it is. Now, completely contrary to the Bible, but at least it says it outright and boldly. The other two, semi-Pelagianism and synergism, are deceptive, misleading. They try to cozy up to grace and cozy up to original sin and try to make peace with the biblical position while stabbing it in the back. Okay. And that's why Luther detested semi-Pelagianism semi and synergism almost worse, because they're dishonest. So let's get to paragraph 76. Three, third, the error of the papists and scholastics. Worth noting that this is in particular who Luther is up against in the Lutheran Reformation. So when you think of medieval Roman Catholicism, it does you well to think semi-Pelagian. So the heir of the papists and scholastics who have acted in a somewhat more crafty way. They have taught that a person from his own natural powers can begin to do good and to convert himself. Then, because a person is too weak to bring it to completion, the Holy Spirit comes to the aid of the good begun from a person's own natural powers. Okay. So, whereas Pelagianism would say the gospel is like this, the gospel, strictly speaking, is an offer. You have to Take that offer. You have to grasp hold of it. It's all up to you. Okay. 
Semi-Pelagianism softens it a little bit and says, if you make an effort, no matter how small, God will respond. But it's still up to you to make that effort. You see the difference? But hopefully you see also why that's still contrary to the doctrine of original sin. You can't make any effort. And contrary to grace. If there's any effort required, it's no longer grace. So semi-Pelagianism falls under the same condemnation as Pelagianism. Really, it's the same error. It's just softened. It's just semi-Pelagianism as opposed to gross or crass Pelagianism. Make sense? Okay, so let's try to find one other way in which human beings can weasel out some part so that we can get credit in our salvation. Because that's actually what this is. It's a study of human beings trying to weasel out some way in which they can say, I'm in heaven because I made a decision for Jesus. Rhodey's in hell because he didn't. Right. So... One way to do that is Pelagianism. The next way to do that is semi-Pelagianism. Then paragraph 77, the third and final way to do this is synergism. Fourth, the teaching of the synergists who pretend that a person is not absolutely dead to good in spiritual things, but is badly wounded and half dead. The free will is too weak to make a beginning. See, that's the distinction between synergism and semi-Pelagianism. Semi-Pelagianism, the person's strong enough to make a beginning but not finish it. Synergism, you're, strong, you're not strong enough to make a beginning, but you are strong enough to finish it. So all we've done is just flip-flop the terms, you see? The free will is too weak to make a beginning and to convert itself to God by its own powers. It can't be obedient to God's law from the heart. Nevertheless, when the Holy Spirit makes a beginning, calls us through the gospel, and offers His grace, the forgiveness of sins, and eternal salvation, then the free will from its own natural powers can meet God. There's the problem. That destroys the biblical doctrine of original sin. We cannot do anything by our own natural power, by our own reason or strength, and that destroys grace. If it's by grace, then it's nothing to do with our own natural powers. Then the free will from its own natural powers can meet God. To a certain extent, although feebly, the will can do something toward salvation. This is probably the... Probably the position of Erasmus in bondage of the will that Luther is up against there. Although, who knows what Erasmus believes? Probably not even Erasmus knows. He's such a skeptic, and he doesn't think that there are really any answers the whole while he's babbling, often contrary answers, uh, which is why Luther has such a good time indicting him. But this idea that God begins it and you finish it, that's synergism. You finish it of your own natural powers. Okay, so just picking up where we left off, uh, for those of you who have lost track, <laughs> paragraph 77, and if you look at the very end of that paragraph, we're up three, six, seven lines right after the semicolon. It can help and cooperate in it, in conversion, and can qualify itself for it, that is, for conversion. 
So the will can help and cooperate in conversion, and the will can qualify itself for conversion. That's synergism. The will can apply itself to grace, can grasp and accept it, and can believe the gospel. It can also cooperate by its own powers with the Holy Spirit in the continuation and maintenance of this work, namely of conversion. So it's not just a matter of the initial conversion, but the sustaining power remains with the human being in his own natural powers so that he works with the Holy Spirit in the continuation and maintenance of his faith, of his conversion. So again, you see how this too wreaks havoc on both original sin and grace. And in a sense, this gives you the backdrop for the Reformation. It's an oversimplification to be sure, but in the, in the history of the church, you can look and see on the teaching of salvation, you have the biblical orthodox teaching, right? that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, on account of Christ alone, and entirely apart from our works. You have Pelagianism, which directly contradicts that. Semi-Pelagianism, which does too, but tries to soften and hide. And Synergism, which tries to soften and hide one more step. But these both teach, I mean, all three of these teach contrary to the position of the Bible. So then, in Luther's day, what was about the closest thing to the gospel you heard? You know, this is a little bit of a historical exaggeration, I would say. Because even if you look at Luther's father, confessor, Staupitz, he understands a gospel in different terms. So the pure gospel is floating around in, in one way or another, subtly understood. It's not as if it was all complete darkness and then Luther you know, has his conversion and suddenly there's one Christian in the world. I mean, that, that's an overstatement to be sure. Okay. But it is helpful to see that what is really accepted in the Western church as orthodox teaching, is semi-Pelagianism and synergism. Pelagianism is rejected, and that's viewed to be the legalism. And then comes a pseudo-gospel in semi-Pelagianism and synergism. Okay. No, 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 it's not. Salvation isn't entirely up to you. That would be legalism. That would be Pelagianism. It's just partly up to you. And then whoever can slice that part thinnest is the most gospely, right? Because look, it's God doing 99.99, put a line on top of it so it goes infinitely. He's doing all of that. All you have to do is this tiny little thing. That's, that's pretty much, at least in some places, Erasmus' position, and Luther will have none of it because it still means that you do something, and that one something is the difference between heaven and hell, right? If you have the point Oh, oh, line on top, all the way down, infinitely, one. If you have that, you're in heaven, and if you don't, you're in hell. So ultimately, that is all that matters. No different than Pelagianism. Either you do it or you don't, right? That's where Pelagianism, semi-Pelagianism, and synergism can all be crunched into one. They're all saying essentially the same thing. If you do it, you're in heaven. You know, make a decision, make it, assert your will. Whatever, however you want to frame it. If you do the one thing, you're in heaven. If you don't, you're in hell. Okay. And that's contrary to the scriptures on these two major points of original sin that says you can do nothing and grace that says God has done everything. Make sense?
All right, then we're poised to see paragraph 78. So against this teaching, namely now synergism, but to some degree all three in view, against this teaching, it has been shown at length above that the power known to qualify oneself for grace naturally does not come from our own natural powers, but only from the Holy Spirit's work. So there's Luther's from the Catechism, I, I believe uh, that I cannot believe. Right? Paragraph 79, 5. Likewise, we reject the following teaching of the popes and monks. After regeneration, a person can completely fulfill God's law in this life, and through this fulfillment of the law, he is righteous before God and merits eternal life. Now, to us, this, this is shifting gears away from the Pelagianism, semi-Pelagianism, synergism. This is shifting gears to a new error that is here rejected. And that error would be much more familiar to us probably in, the, in America as the holiness bodies. The idea that if you have really been uh, converted and made new by the Holy Spirit, then you no longer sin. You don't run into them too much, it seems, anymore, but at least in these parts anymore. But they're still around here and there. Christians who think, hey, I've become a Christian, I no longer sin. Well, back in Luther's time, it wasn't the radicals that were doing that. It was simply the popes and monks who were saying, after regeneration, a person can perfectly fulfill God's law. Not true. We can never perfectly fulfill God's law. We can begin to, by the power of the Holy Spirit at work in us, uh, we can begin to. It's not, we're better off than not having the Holy Spirit, wherein we would not keep the law whatsoever. But are we perfect in keeping the law? By no means. So that teaching that we somehow, after conversion, are perfectly keeping God's law, that is here rejected in this fifth of the uh, negative statements. Let's pause there before moving on to six. I'll just see if you have any questions or any thoughts. I see a hand up here. With the people who say, the Christians today who say that they don't sin, what, what do they say to a passage like 1 John where it says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us? What, are, what do they do with that? Yeah, I don't, I don't know directly, but my guess would be that, that they try to say that has to do with uh, the pre-converted man. That'd be my guess. <clears throat> would you um, categorize... Billy Graham's crusade as plagiaristic, synergistic, or what? Because he required that. Yeah, that forward. decision for Jesus, uh -huh. right? Yeah. Well, the the strange and I, the strange thing about it, of course, is if you uh, even if you're presenting the gospel in a Pelagian, semi-Pelagian, or synergistic way, if the gospel is is there in itself, that has the power to convert despite the error in presentation. That's why many genuine Christians were made at Billy Graham Crusades, and why we pray many genuine Christians are made throughout the entire church on earth, whether it be Roman Catholic or Rick Warren or, you know, snake handlers in the Appalachians. If the gospel is there, it has the power to create faith despite the error in presentation, despite whatever doctrinal errors might be in the hearer. And that's, that's what we pray for. 
Now, does that mean that we commend every church body that preaches the gospel? No, because if they preach the gospel in such a way that it's mingled with deadly error, like Pelagianism, semi-Pelagian synergism, um, they're, they're in effect taking away with, with one hand what they give with the other, right? And if someone believes that, they're snatched away from hearing the true gospel, and they're locked into an error. And that error happens to be their own pride. I'm saved because I made a decision for Jesus. Now that has all sorts of effects when it plays itself out in one's Christian walk and life. Uh, that's, why, that's why that mingling of law and gospel, the mingling of God's done it all, now you just have to. See how that's gospel, God's done it all, now you just have to fill in the blank, make a decision or whatever. That's law. Okay, that mingling of law and gospel is poisonous to the faith can create false Christians, can inoculate you against the true gospel, and can lead to, to all sorts of havoc as that spreads. So for those reasons, we rightly, with the Book of Concord, condemn those who hold such positions. We nonetheless do understand that even what men mean for evil and work for evil, God is powerful enough to work for good. And wherever that word of God is preached and taught rightly, it has the power to convert. So. Anyway, long-winded, but that's about how Lutherans look at Billy Graham and other successful evangelicals who employ the, the decision theology perspective. Yes, Paula. If you could help me through all the nooks and crannies of this. When we talk about um, wanting to do God's will after conversion, uh -huh. okay, right away, I think. That isn't what I know. <laughs> and I think of St. Paul saying, I, I'm at war with my members, which has been mentioned. Mm -hmm. So if you would comment more on that, and then also with Christ saying, if I don't have to do this, you know, go to the cross, you know, take it away from me. What is oh, okay. it that he was averse to experiencing sin? Was it that he didn't want to go through pain? Like, we don't want to go through pain or... If you could just comment on it, fill in some of it. Okay, so two, as, I, as I'm hearing, two very different questions. Uh, the first question, we're going to actually get another run at it. If you look down at the bottom of 534 at terms and expressions that we're coming right up on, let's see if that answers your question. Um, because if you look, just look really quickly at paragraph 84, there still remains also in the regenerate a rebelliousness of which the scriptures speak. The desires of the flesh are against the spirit also of the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul, and in my members another law wages war against the law of my mind. There's Romans 7 that you quoted. And then we're going to talk about re what regeneration means in light of those passages. So can we simply see if that addresses otherwise? What, what Jesus is doing in the garden um, when he asked that the cup would pass from him is, of course, a bit of a mystery. Uh, in John's Gospel, those that would hinder Jesus from going to the to, to those that would hinder Jesus from going to the cross, he says, "For this purpose I have come." And when Peter tries to hinder him from going to the cross in the Synoptics, he says, "Get behind me, Satan." So it would be weird that Jesus suddenly gets cold feet um, when it gets to be the cross time. The way that most theologians in the church uh, state that is, well, when he was right up against it, there was true, genuine fear and terror. I mean, I suppose there's nothing wrong with that. It just it causes some problems, causes some tensions with those other texts. 
Um, that's, that's caused a, a minority within the church to consider other possibilities, namely that Jesus there uh, may be asking not so much for the cup to pass as in, let me get this out, let, let me get out of this, but rather, you know, the cup has already begun to be drank there in the garden. Let this cup pass quickly. Um, or an expression of what is, it, what is it for the eternal Father to forsake the eternal and everlasting Son and that dynamic. I think there's far more, to me, interesting questions, interesting explorations along those lines than just what we're always told, which is Jesus, for one reason or another, got cold feet. Again, that rubs up against a couple scriptures that just go, okay, well, if that's, I mean, that may be true. That may be true, but, and if it is, it doesn't affect his, it doesn't affect anything. Um, but it also may be that, that that passage has more to say than, than we've, uh, we've really learned to listen to. So I don't know, that's the best I can do. Probably get charged with heresy for saying that. Okay, did I see another hand with another microphone? All right, let's, uh, let's go on. Back at paragraph 80. <clears throat> on the other hand, the enthusiasts, um, enthusiasts is a technical term there. It doesn't mean people really excited about Jesus. Uh, when a Lutheran calls you an enthusiast, you don't say, oh, thank you. <laughs> uh, enthusiasts, these are the radical reformers who, you know, you have the heirs of Rome, you have the Lutheran Reformation, you have the people who are so anti-Rome, they swing from one heir into the opposite heir. The shorthand term for that is Luther's call, Lutherans called them enthusiasts. Now, the reason for that is enthusiasm, it has some overlap with our English, but the idea mean, the meaning is um, entheosism, God, theos, within. So the enthusiasts are people who think they have immediate and direct revelation from God. They don't need the word and they don't need the sacraments. They view the word and the sacraments as empty signs and symbols. The power is right directly from God into my heart and into my mind. That's an enthusiast, an entheosiast. Make sense? Okay, so a radical, a radical uh, reformer in view here. So six, on the other hand, the enthusiast should be rebuked with great seriousness and zeal. They should not be tolerated in any way in God's church. They imagine that God, without any means, without the hearing of the divine word, and without the use of the holy sacraments, draws people to himself, enlightens, justifies, and saves them. So that, by the way, as far as dictionary or glossary definitions go, is a pretty darn good definition for enthusiasm, theolog theologically understood. <clears throat> Seven, we should also rebuke those who imagine that in conversion and regeneration, God creates a new heart and new person in such a way that the substance and essence of the old Adam, and especially the rational soul, are completely destroyed, and a new essence of the soul is created out of nothing. That would make you a whole new person ontologically in terms of your essence or being. It would be almost like getting a lobotomy and then a new brain. And that here is rejected. That's not how it works. 
We're going to answer this question more fully under terms and expressions, so I don't want to belabor it here. But let's simply continue on the bottom two lines. St. Augustine clearly rebukes this error in his comments on Psalm 25, where he quotes the passage from Paul in Ephesians 4.22. Put off your old self. Augustine explains this in the following words. Lest anyone might think that the substance or essence of a person is to be laid aside, he himself explains what it is to lay aside the old man and to put on the new, when he says in the following words, putting away lying, speak the truth. Behold, that is to put off the old man and put on the new. So it's not an ontological change, but it's a daily drowning and putting to death of the old Adam who remains in us. Um, by that new will that God has created in us by virtue of conversion. But that new will isn't something that he creates ex nihilo. That new will is the old will made right. Thus it's a conversion as opposed to like a destruction and new creation and, and a new creation ex nihilo. Like that's not the sense of it. It's a new creation but in the sense of a, a break with the old, a beginning of a new, and yet not ex nihilo, not in such a way that uh, the, the, the human being itself is destroyed. Right? Otherwise, as soon as you convert someone, they'd, their heads would explode or something. Really, truly. And then God would have to reform a new one. Or their hearts would explode within their chest and God would have to reform a new one. Okay, at any rate, that's, that's all rejected here. And rightfully so, on the basis of uh, the scriptures and... Um, Augustine. I see that we're over time. I'm sorry. Let's uh, stop there. We'll hit eight next week, and then we'll go in terms and expressions, and we'll be done with this article. The Lord be with you.